Well, good morning, church. It is a, um, a joy to be able to, to share uh, with you from God's Word, as always. I want to say welcome to those that are joining us on Wills Point, um, those that may be joining us online. We're glad that you're spending some time with us this morning. And, um, and I hope that this is a blessing to you, that as we continue on in our study of Romans, that, um, um, that we find in the Word today some encouragement um, for us, but also some clarity and a deeper understanding of who God is, of His plan, His purpose, um, His salvation, um, and uh, what that means for us. Um, so let's, let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, um, you can go to Romans chapter 9. Um, we're going to be there for the bulk of it, but I want to back up. So if you'll mark Romans chapter 9 and then just flip to Genesis 12, I want to pick up this morning kind of right where Brandon left off last week. Last week, Brandon, um, as he was wrapping up the teaching, he, he illustrated or used an analogy for Israel in the current position or state of Israel right now by, by saying that they are the starting quarterback or they're the stud, but right now they've been benched. Um, and why? Why have they been benched? And he said they've been benched because they've become uncoachable. And I don't want to begin this morning talking about how they've become uncoachable. We'll talk about that towards the end of our time this morning. But I want to begin this morning with what was their purpose to begin with? Why did God call? Why did God elect this nation? What was his purpose in doing so? And then when we look at that, it's, what, it's, it's learning what they did not do that helps us to see why they got pulled, why they were put on the bench. So if we can understand really what their purpose was, it helps us to realize then what our purpose is as we work through the text. So look at me here. Look with me. Um, not look at me because I'm here. But look with me at Genesis chapter 12. And let's look at how God called Abraham and what God promised Abraham. So beginning in Genesis 12 verse 1 uh, the Lord said, now, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that, mark, so that you will be a blessing. So God calls Abraham, and he's going to bless him, but he's going to bless him so that he says, You will be a blessing. And then in verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families or all the peoples or nations of the earth shall be blessed. So in short, the purpose for Israel, the purpose of God's calling and election of them was that so the blessings of God would be given to all people through them. So Israel was blessed to be a blessing. And as God calls Abraham, now note at this point in time, there, there is no nation of Israel. Out of all the peoples of the earth, God calls one man. If you remember from last week, as, as Paul worked through and Brandon worked through chapter 9, it is, does not the potter have right over the clay? But can he not make from the same lump vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable use? So out of the same lump, all the people, God called one man. And he didn't call him because he was a great man. He called him because of his mercy. All peoples, the same lump as we learned from our earlier parts of our study of Romans, that we're all unrighteous. 
No one is righteous. No, not one. Every one of us are the same. We're set apart from God because of our sinfulness. So out of that same lump, he calls one man, bestows his mercy upon him, gives him promise, gives him blessing, but he doesn't give him blessing just for himself. It is so that he would be a blessing to the others, that the entire world, all the families, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. That is the purpose for which God called Abraham. That is the purpose that he set forth for the nation. So from here... You have the sovereignty of God on display in that he called Isaac, not Ishmael. He calls Jacob, but he doesn't call Esau. And it's not on the basis of anything that they've done, but solely on God's election. It is his discretion. And it's not something he saw in any of them. Because if you really look at what Jacob did versus Esau, both were equally wicked. Both were deceitful. But God called one over the other by his sovereign election. In verse 9, chapter 10 and 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And it's to these people, as the nation is birthed out of Egypt, when 70 people go into Egypt and out comes millions of people, it's to them belong, as Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 9, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and all the promises. So that's the purpose that they were created, and that's what was given to them in order for them to fulfill the purpose that God instituted for them to bless all the nations. So he gave them all these things in order to show mercy on them so that the rest of the world would share in that blessing. But let's look back at how it all began. Again, God called one man out of the same lump and established from him a nation that would display his mercy to the world. So now, let's jump forward back to Romans 9 and let's look at verse 22. Verse 22, Paul says this. He says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So who are the vessels of wrath? Paul gives an example of this in verse 17 with Pharaoh, right? He says to Pharaoh, or for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So you see the picture here. So you have vessels of mercy in Israel, giving them all the promises. You're going to be a blessing to the world. But then he has here that there's going to be vessels of wrath. Remember, from the same lump, he makes... Vessels for honorable, vessels for dishonorable use. Vessels of wrath here is an example in Pharaoh. And God endured with much patience Pharaoh. Did he not destroy? Did he destroy Pharaoh immediately? Whenever Moses goes, if you know the story, right? Moses goes to Pharaoh. God said, let my people go. Did Moses just immediately let his people go? No, he didn't. He relented. And over and over and over, Moses went back to Pharaoh, back to Pharaoh, back to Pharaoh. But God endured with much patience Vessels of wrath in order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Which he has prepared beforehand for glory, verse 23. So over time, Israel begins to no longer follow the Lord. What happens from there? You have have Pharaoh at that point in time, vessel of wrath. That God endures with much patience to reveal his riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Israel. But over time, Israel would not follow the Lord. And as we read last week from Deuteronomy 30, 
said that their heart turned away and they did not hear and were drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them. The promises that God made with them, the covenant that God made with them, that they would keep his statutes and keep his laws and they would be blessed in doing so. But if they did not, remember it's I set before you today a blessing and a curse. And they failed to keep his law and they turned away from the Lord. So God judged them. So those that were once vessels of mercy have now become vessels of wrath, who God has endured with great patience over a good deal of time in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So who are now the vessels of mercy? In verse 24, it has become the Gentiles. So do you see the picture how we got to where we're at this morning? How it all started? The purpose that God had for the nation of Israel, that they would be called, one man would be called out of the same lump. He would bestow his mercy upon that man. Out of that man would come a great nation that would be vessels of mercy so that the riches of his glory may be on display for the world to see. But when they fail in that, there's no longer a blessing but a curse according to his word. Now does that mean that God's not true to his word. Because if we look, think with, me, think with me on this. If we look at the end of chapter 8, if we look at 8 verse 39, that, that, that we are more than conquerors in all these things. And I'm convinced, Paul says, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So nothing can separate us. He makes this promise to believers. But then if you look at Israel, and it seems as if he's rejected Israel. So can we trust in God to keep promises to his people, the church, Gentiles, if it seems as if he didn't keep that to Israel. But Paul begins to unpack that and answer that for us. He uses Hosea in verse 25 to illustrate the inclusion of the Gentiles. And he says this, he says, Those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called, they will be called sons of the living God. And in the original context in Hosea, Hosea is pronouncing judgment against God's people for their failure to follow him. That they committed adultery on God. In their relationship with God, they went and as he said, hoard after the gods of the people that lived around them. Instead of being true to their God, the God. And Hosea pronounces judgment upon them. And in that context, he says that one day, though, though God rejects them as his people, one day, those that were not my people, I will call my people, and he will restore spiritual Israel. So when we think about that, how is it that he promises believers that nothing will separate us from his love, but then he seems to reject Israel, but here he's saying that one day he will restore Spiritual Israel, back to its standing before him. But Paul uses this as an illustration or an analogy for the inclusion of the Gentiles. Because if God's people, at one point in time, because of their disobedience, became not his people, what would that say then for the Gentiles, who are most certainly not his people, but will one day become his people? And in the very place where it was said to you, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God, and to this point throughout Romans, Paul has built that case for the believers that in Christ were justified by faith, given his righteousness. We're adopted into his family, chapter 8. And we are called children of the living God. 
And then here in verse 27, he uses now back to Israel. He uses Isaiah to illustrate God's mercy that is still upon Israel. And answers that question that the Jew in that day as they're reading this letter may have came to. Does God really keep his promises? And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. He says only a remnant of them will be saved. But he says a remnant will be saved. They're not all going to be utterly destroyed. There will be a remnant. There will always be a remnant that remains faithful so that God keeps his promises. He doesn't go on his promises. Scripture says that God cannot lie. He will not go back on his word. We go back on our word. God does not. And here he says that a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And the point that that Isaiah is making, and the point that Paul is quoting Isaiah to, to to apply to the nation of Israel, is that a a remnant does remain. God's promise still stands. And he says that though they were so wicked... He uses Sodom and Gomorrah purposefully because Sodom and Gomorrah are synonymous, synonymous with utter wickedness. Absolute evil. And that this people, these cities were destroyed utterly from the face of the earth for their wickedness against God. There was no one holy. There was no one righteous in those cities. And they were destroyed. And that's how bad Israel was. And that's where they were headed. But God's promise still stood that he would not allow them to be destroyed in such a way. So he left them offspring. So now it brings us to the question of why were they benched? They were benched because they were unfaithful, yes. But more importantly, it's something else that they didn't do. They didn't fulfill their purpose, but how did they not fulfill their purpose? What was the actual thing that caused them to be benched, to be pulled out of the game? So that the role would be handed over to someone else, the Gentiles. But this is where God's election meets human responsibility. In verse 30, Paul says this. He says, what shall we say then? So Paul's now drawing a conclusion. And the conclusion is this. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Verse 31. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Max Anders says this. um, He says, what an irony. This would be comparable to a professional gold miner going to the field with all the latest high-tech prospecting tools, laboring diligently according to form, and finding nothing. And a lazy, drunken town bum stubbing his toe on a rock in the trail, which turns out to be part of a mother load that makes him fabulous, fabulously wealthy. One was searching for everything but found nothing, and the other was searching for nothing but found everything. Such was the case with Israel and the Gentiles. Now, if we talk about the Gentiles for a minute, why do you think in this quote, why do you think, what do you think he means by there was one searching for nothing, i.e. the Gentiles? One was searching for nothing but found everything. One was searching for everything but found nothing. But what did he mean by one searching for nothing? Return with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, and let's look at what Paul tells Timothy here regarding the state of 
the Gentile, the state of the non-believer, the state of the one that does not have God, that's separated from God, what does he say there to Timothy? He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. You see the character traits of the Gentile? The character trait of the, of the non-believer, the character traits of those that are far from God and without hope in this world? I'm not going to ask you to repeat or remember the entire list, but look at how the list begins. I don't have this on for the screen on you for you. But in verse 2, he tells he says, For people will be lovers of self. And in the end, at the end of his list, he said that they're going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So, so in our state, apart from God, we love ourselves and we don't love God. So when Max Anders, he makes this statement in, the, in, the, in, this, in this connection... that when it comes to the Gentiles, they, they were looking for nothing. They, we don't seek after God. You may, you may think that you hear testimonies of people, I was really I was seeking after God and then I found him. That's not the case. We don't seek after God. We're lovers of self. We're not lovers of God. We don't find salvation. Salvation finds us. When we look at, look at the context of this text and when we look at chapter 8, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those who called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. All of that depends on God. So the Gentile, who does not have the promises, does not have the law, does not have worship, does not know God in any way, is not seeking after God or his righteousness. But here, in this case, Paul is saying the Jew does all those things, seeks after God, with everything that's been given, but finds nothing. But the Gentile stumbles upon it. Why is that? How is that if not apart from God? It is only God. It is God who calls. But Gentiles, we, us, we don't pursue righteousness or salvation without God's intervention in our lives. Without His Spirit first drawing us to Him. Our character does not allow that, based on what Paul tells Timothy. But the Jew, he pursued it. The Jew pursued it relentlessly, but found nothing. He did not find it. In verse 32, he says, why? To answer his question, Paul says, why? But then he says, because they did not pursue it by faith. They didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And we have talked at length, Paul has talked at length and taught at length about faith and works, how we're justified by faith, not by our works. James says, faith without works is dead, yes, but we're justified by faith. And because of our faith come good works. But the Jew pursued good works in order to find righteousness. But they always fell short. Because remember, we all came from the same lump. He says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion, Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul here is quoting Isaiah 28, 16 and Isaiah 8, 14. And he's putting these verses together here in one sentence to build his point. But in the original context, Isaiah 28, 16 says this. It says, Behold, I am the one who has laid a who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be put in haste or put to shame. In 8.14 in Isaiah, he says this, and he will become a sanctuary, sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare. Verse 15, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So, so in context, in, in the original view in Isaiah's time, what he's saying is he's pronouncing one a woe on Israel for her injustice and her unrighteousness before the Lord. And God's going to use his standards as a cornerstone to set up truth and set up and build a sure foundation for them. It's in his time that Israel and Judah did not trust the Lord. They were relying on Assyria at the time instead of trusting the Lord. The rock that the Lord put there was meant to be protection for them, but it became a stumbling stone. If they don't embrace him, God, or have faith in him, they will then stumble over him, is the picture. So Paul's application is this, that these references to the stone were then applied to Christ. And that means that Israel has stumbled over what is clearly in her path, her Messiah. When Jesus says, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in me, I've come to fulfill the law. All of it points to him. And here Paul uses these connections, these illustrations to bring about his point as to what has held Israel back, what they have stumbled over, and they have stumbled over Christ, the stumbling stone. Look at Peter's application, too, as he writes to the elect exiles in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 8. I do have this for you on the screen. Peter says, As you come to him, or Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he says, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, that's Isaiah 28, 16. Peter quoting the same Scripture Paul does, and he's applying it directly to Christ. Verse 7, he says, so the honor is for you who believe. But he says, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's, he's quoting Psalm 118.22. And verse 8, they're a stone, it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Again, Isaiah 8.14, the same as what Paul quotes. And he's applying it directly to Christ. And then he says this, that they stumble because they disobey the word. But note this, as they were destined to do. You see God's sovereignty in this? So Israel certainly stumbles over Jesus' claim to being Messiah. But as we wrap up, I want to I take a look at Luke chapter 20 and look at how Jesus interacts with the very people that he came from. 
The very people, the religious leaders of Israel, the very peoples that at one point in time were were vessels of mercy meant to display the riches of God's glory to the world and how they've utterly failed and how they've missed him. So 20, verse 9 through 19, and this is in response to the question that the religious leaders asked Jesus, is the, in whose authority does he do the things that he does? And in verse 9, Jesus, it says, and, and he began to tell the people this parable. It says, a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time for a long while and when time when the time came he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed and he sent another servant but they beat but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed notice the progression they didn't just beat him and send him away this one they beat and treated him shamefully and then sent him away and he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. The idea with wounded is they went one step further. Is they not only beat and, and, and treated them shamefully, but then he's wounded them and they have cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? He says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. You see what Jesus is getting to in this story, this parable that he's sharing with these religious leaders? But let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours, they say. And then they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? Note what he says here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, Psalm 118, 22. Jesus quoting the Old Testament. These religious leaders most certainly know everything that he's talking about, and they respond. Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Remember, Isaiah 8, verse 15. And many shall stumble on it, that stone, and shall fall and be broken. And Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 19, Luke 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Do you, see the, do you see the picture that Jesus is building for the religious leaders? The very people that have been stumbling over this stone for generations. Now, finally, their Messiah has come. Their Messiah has come, and he is standing before them. But instead of the rock of salvation, instead of their refuge, he's the stone of stumbling. He's the rock of offense. And it's against them, the very tenants that were left to care for the vineyard. You see how they failed in their purpose. So Paul's, Peter's, and Jesus' citation of these verses is a way to demonstrate that the Jews had yet to embrace and build upon the stone which God had provided. What he provided to be the foundation of their faith, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
So rather than receive a righteousness that is by faith, verse 30, the Jews stumbled over Jesus and were being crushed under the weight of their own unrighteousness. But all the while pursuing what they believed to be righteousness. See, all this, all this, is, all this centers on God's mercy. And that out of the same lump, out of all peoples, he calls one man that is just like all peoples, just as sinful and on his way to judgment. God calls him out and has mercy upon him. And from that man comes greatness. God's promise was true. Greatness. Descendants is many of the sands of the seashore, but they failed. And God's purpose, God's promise holds. And that he would judge them. And one day that very people would stand there. A Pharisee, a religious leader would stand there. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy right here, this tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven. And he cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Recognizing his situation. We don't, we don't, we don't pursue righteousness. The Gentile doesn't pursue it, but it finds us. They stumbled because they pursued a salvation as if it were based on works, not grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace that you are saved. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And they, aside from the remnant, are currently missing it entirely. So for you and I today, Gentiles, what, are, what is our takeaway? But my question for us this morning is, what do we rely on for our salvation? If we didn't pursue salvation, if we didn't pursue righteousness, but it found us, if we realize and understand that truth, if we look back to Romans 8 and the promise that is there, that we were called, God called us. And where chapter 9 of Romans meets chapter 10, where election meets human responsibility, we did respond to the Lord. But for us now, as we move forward and we think about salvation and we think about our lives and the things that we do and the works that we are to do, how we are to respond to God in obedience, we're not obedient to gain something. We're obedient because we've been given everything. But what does our salvation rely upon? There may be someone here this morning, someone listening online, what does is, what is your salvation rely upon? Is it your spiritual inheritance? Do you rely upon your parents' faith? For the young adult in the room? Do you rely on your parents' faith for the adult adult in the room? Is it because you grew up in church? How often I've heard that. Ask someone, hey, what do you believe about Jesus? Or what you're standing before God? Well, you know, I grew up in church. Me and God, we got an understanding. I tell you for sure that the religious leaders of the day would say that, oh, me and God, we got an understanding because we've got all this stuff. But what does your salvation rely upon? Past spiritual achievements? Been on mission trips, disciple nows. I've served. I'm here every Sunday. But what is it that your salvation relies upon? Is it the things that you do? Or is it the rock of your salvation in Jesus Christ? It's certainly not on our own merit, on our own personal goodness, or our own perceived morality. 
Church, for you and I, the takeaway for us as Gentile believers is to understand that our belief is a result of His calling on our lives. And it's His goodness, His grace, and His mercy. And my prayer is that we walk in that daily. Church, that we find ourselves in a position of humbleness before the Lord and before others, not in arrogance. Hey, look at me. Look at everything that I know. Look at the knowledge that I have. He's going to, as we look at chapter 10, he's going to continue on there. That they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge or a true knowledge. They know a bunch of stuff. They know the law. The religious leaders perceive that Jesus was quoting all this and he was saying it about them, but they weren't making the connection between what he was saying about himself. And that is the message. That is the message of God's word. It's not what he's saying to you. It's what God says about himself. That he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is everything that is good and wonderful and true. If he places a calling on our life, we receive salvation that he gives. Then we have all the promises of chapter 8. God will restore the nation of Israel as we continue on with chapter 10 and get to chapter 11. God will restore them. But until then, God's original purpose still stands. The purpose for which he called out and had mercy on one man and set up a nation from him to display his riches, the riches of his glory to a watching world. The nation of Israel failed in that. But God's plan will still go forth. And as he has benched the starting quarterback, he's put in the backup. And that is you and I. That is the Gentile. And the end goal is no different than what it began. What it was for the starting quarterback, it is for the backup. And that is to get in the game. to Run the plays that he has designed. Pursue excellence in those things. Not mediocrity, because we're the back. I'm just the backup quarterback. Mm -mm. If that enters our mindset, we're going to fail. We should be pursuing excellence because God has called us for His glory, for our good, for His kingdom. Church, this world needs that message, it needs the gospel every single day. It needs it on the other side of the world. But it needs it right here on the other side of the fence. And if we're unwilling to do that, we'll find ourselves in a place where we're not fulfilling the purpose that God's called us to. But may we remember what our salvation relies upon and respond to that accordingly. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you have. You've called us out of darkness and in your marvelous light. I thank you that you've, you have. You've called us for a purpose. You haven't saved us just for us to sit and be saved. You've saved us, Lord, to, 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 to share. You've saved us to, to make known your name, the riches of your glory to the world around us, Lord. That we may be vessels of mercy that display your glory to the rest.
rest of this world, Lord. I pray that for us as a church, Lord, that we would stand on your truth, on who you say you are, Lord, that you would be the rock of our salvation, not a rock of offense, not a stumbling stone in our path, Lord. When we come to difficult times in our path, Lord, that we would stand behind you, a rock that will not move, that protects us in all things, Lord, and leads us in all things. For your glory and for our good, according to your promise, Lord, that we share in. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for that. I pray that you deepen our understanding of that. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.